Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to illumine our minds and hearts as we hear his word. Father, we are so grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in the words of Holy Scripture. We pray now that you would give our minds and our hearts the attention necessary to hear your word. We pray that we would not only be hearers, but doers. We pray that you would help us to see areas where the word must be applied to our lives, and that as we leave here, we would be shaped by your word. And we pray that all of this would be for your glory. As we just sang, it is your name that is ultimately at stake. And so we pray that our lives would resound the song, How Great is Our God. I pray that that would be true of each and every one of us, and especially as we gather together as a congregation. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm doing something that I don't do often, so it's an anomaly in some sense. I'm going to preach what is called a topical sermon, and some of you might not even be familiar with that language. You might think, well, aren't you always doing that? Isn't it always some topic? But no, there's, there's all of this discussion when it comes to preaching, and some of it gets quite technical. But a topical sermon is different from what I normally do in the sense that I have a text, but we're going to sort of jump all around, and I've got points that don't necessarily derive from that text directly. So typically I preach a sermon that I'm extracting the points directly from the text. I'm not making the points up. I'm saying I'm forced to come to these points as we go through the text. But a topical sermon has its place, and we need to do that this morning. The purpose is to explain the rationale of our formation changes beginning this fall. I want to explain what we're talking about this afternoon, and I have a chunk of time to do that now and to present that to you here and to show you the biblical and theological reasons behind this. And before we get too far, before we start really talking about the reasons, let me define a word that may not be very clear to us. So we keep talking about Christian formation, and I want to talk about that word formation. You could use the word discipleship, but formation tends to be a bit broader. Formation has the idea of shaping and molding, forming us into something. And namely in the Christian faith, that is being formed or shaped into the image of Christ. So formation concerns how we are shaped and changed, how we are formed. Paul talks about this when he writes to the Roman churches in Romans chapter 12. He says, do not be conformed. You see the word formed there. Do not be conformed, that is pressed into the mold of this world, but be transformed, again, a, a form of form that is to be changed, transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the idea of Christian formation, 
And I don't call it spiritual formation because spiritual can mean anything these days. Christian formation is that we are progressively shaped and formed in every area of our lives to be more like Christ. We are progressively shaped and formed away from the world and transformed into the image of Christ so that we are growing up into maturity. And that would include every area. And you can think about even a foundation for this in the most famous verse in the Old Testament, the Shema, Hebrew, or <laughs> Shema in Hebrew, but it's from Deuteronomy 6 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Remember, Jesus repeats this and says this is the greatest commandment because it summarizes the whole law. And the idea is that every aspect of our being is formed and shaped around this love for God. So that's what we're talking about. And when Paul writes, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, he's getting at this idea of shaping every single area of our lives. Every area. And so this comes through knowledge, comes through habits and practices, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we acquire knowledge, but we need the Spirit to apply that. We have Christian practices like prayer and Bible reading and self-denial and self-examination. And all of these things, by the power of the Spirit, are forming us and shaping us. In fact, I'll even say one more point about that. What we do in a worship service is formative. And I think we're, we miss this at times, but as we gather together, I hope you'll begin to think of this as a form, formative process, that singing together that praying together, that hearing God's word preached and proclaimed together is shaping us into a different sort of people and into a different sort of community. That is the idea of formation. Notice what else Paul says here. He warns us. He says, do not be conformed to the world. The reason he warns us is because formation, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, is always happening. We're always being shaped and formed by something. The question is, what mold are we being formed into? What values are we adopting? What loves capture our affections? What practices and habits are becoming natural to us? And what occupies our mind? And so the warning here is, if we aren't intentionally engaging in serious Christian formation, we will be formed by something else. That is true. The, the world will conform us to its image rather than the image of Christ. And so the real purpose, as I've said, behind formation is becoming a particular sort of person and together becoming a particular sort of community, what we would call a distinct community. And if you want some more on that, you can go back to February when I was preaching through the book of Acts, or not the whole book, but the first eight chapters. And on February 28th, I talked about this idea of being a distinct community, being formed around the gospel. Or you can go back to Acts 2, and I'm sure I talked about it in the latter half of Acts 2 there as well. 
But continuing this morning, the late Christian psychologist who, who passed away earlier this year, Larry Crabb, began his book, Finding God, with the following two paragraphs. I want to share those with you. George MacDonald once began a sermon by saying, if I cannot persuade you to understand a little more of Jesus Christ, my labor is lost in coming to you. If I cannot help any human heart to draw closer to the living one, my labor is lost. He went on to ask, did the fact ever cross your mind that you are here in this world just to understand the Lord Jesus Christ and for no other reason? That, this knowledge of Jesus Christ and being here to know him, intimately walking with him, that is the goal of formation as I hope to show you this morning. Now, that brings us back to Second Peter in our verse here, our platform verse. Let me give you a little context. Christians are people who look to the future reign of Christ, and that's what Peter's getting at as he concludes this book or this letter of Second Peter. It's this anticipation that Christ will come and reign and rule that changes every aspect of our life here and now. That's why Peter is writing, and that's what he is writing about when we get to verse 18. Um, and this really could be a theme verse for our formation process. Prior to this, he talks about being diligent to be holy so that when Christ returns, we will be blameless before him. And then he warns that there are errors that can carry us away. There are distortions of the faith that can carry us away. And so he writes this final word of exhortation, this final command here in verse 18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And as I've said, this could easily be a vision and a mission statement for a congregation. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look closely at it. First, there's this command, this imperative. Grow. There is a command to, to grow. The opposite of growth is stagnation, or perhaps worse, death. The opposite of growth is to be stunted and ultimately to die. What happens to a plant that fails to grow? It dies. It doesn't put down roots. It doesn't expand. So the Christian life, according to Peter and according to the rest of the New Testament, is one of progressive growth. The idea is that we are always moving forward. We are pressing on. We are becoming more like Christ. Layers of the old self are being shed and we're pressing into the new life. We call this sanctification sometimes, which is the process of becoming holy, becoming more like Christ. Now, what sort of growth is Peter talking about here? He tells us, he says, grow in two things, the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace and knowledge. These are the two areas Peter identifies. Grow in grace is the first one. Grow in grace. It's an odd phrase. It might not make a lot of sense, but this, that his sense of sin is becoming deeper, his faith stronger, his hope brighter, his love more extensive, his spiritual mindedness more marked. He feels more of the power of godliness in his own heart. He manifests more of it in his life. 
So the idea of growing in grace is this idea of taking up the characteristics of the Christian life as found in the New Testament, developing them, the fruits of the Spirit being developed in us. Growth in grace is the distinctive domain of Christian progress as we are formed by the power of the Holy Spirit increasingly into the image of Christ. This is what makes us distinct, by the way. Okay, it's not just that we try to do good things, it's that the Spirit's activity in us is producing new graces, new fruits. Peter also includes the second part, growth in knowledge. Growth in knowledge. Now, formation is not merely intellectual. Okay, we don't just need you to pass, to, uh, pass a theology exam. That's important. It's no less than that. Formation cannot simply dismiss the intellectual component. It can't be less than that, but it's not merely intellectual. Matthew Henry summarized the knowledge this way, writing, Follow on to know the Lord. Labor to know him more clearly and more fully, to know more of Christ and to, to know him uh, and, and to him to better purpose so as to be more like him and to love him better. Okay, what Matthew Henry is getting at is a truth that we all know. What we love, we know. It is a matter of intimacy and fascination. And it's not just mere knowledge, but it does, does include that. So if I know nothing about my wife intellectually, I can't truly commune with her and be intimate and know her in the way that Scripture speaks about it. Knowledge leads to that communion, but it can't stop with just simple facts, right? It must go beyond that. So knowledge that leads to praise and worship and growth and change. Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's this idea of knowing being this true knowledge that leads to deep, intimate communion with. And knowledge should increase our obedience. Otherwise, it is pointless. I would readily concede that point. We can be the best theologians in the world, and if it's not leading us to praise and to change and to worship, it is worthless. It is dead. This verse, though, captures the idea of formation. We want to grow in the grace and the knowledge, and here's the content, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the goal of all of our growth, of all of our knowledge. One commentator named Michael Green summarizes, knowledge of Christ and knowledge about Christ are, if they keep pace with one another, both the safeguard against heresy and apostasy, apostasy would be leaving the faith, and also the means of growth in grace. For the more we know Christ, the more we will invoke his grace. As we're going to see, pitfalls abound, and to be a faithful church, it is necessary to follow this biblical imperative to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to give you four reasons why these formation changes are necessary. I know there is some fear. I know there's some anxiety because we're using the word change. We're talking about things that are unfamiliar. Some of them seem a little bit scary. And we're going to talk more about that this afternoon. But for now, I want to give you the why 
of the formation process. So some of you have heard by now, everyone has had access to hear about the what and the how, and we'll discuss again more of that this afternoon. But this morning, I want to tell you why we're trying this formation process. You might even phrase it as a question. Why am I doing this to you? What in the world am I trying to do to you? We are doing this because we believe there's a lot at stake, as both Peter and Paul have warned, and we believe there's tremendous good and joy in this process. Number one, formation is a pastoral obligation. Whatever modern conceptions of the pastoral office the church has adopted must be set aside. Scripture places much weight on the obligations of the pastor. There is a weightiness to this task. Now, I don't say that to blow up my own head. That's not an exciting thing to talk about. In fact, Scripture is very clear that pastors will be judged more severely, that they're held to greater account. And when you think about it, I have a great deal of responsibility in standing here right now and teaching you. Okay, even, if, even if we only had five people here, that is a great deal of responsibility. Right, which is why the Bible says not many of you should become teachers. It's a very serious task. Paul writes to the young Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then more fully, he explains to Timothy, a young pastor, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. So it's not just a matter of this is a good job or a good vocation. It's in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's a strong charge. And here's the charge. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Well, why would he tell Timothy to do these things? Well, that's in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but instead they will have itching ears. It's a great image, isn't it? Itching ears that want to hear what they want to hear. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions or their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the danger is, and we know this is a true danger, the culture is constantly throwing information at us. And people, all of us, are inclined to, to have, have greater attention given to those things that would satisfy our own desires. But Paul warns Timothy that it's necessary to preach and reprove and rebuke and exhort and to continue doing those things because there is great danger here, people can be led astray. In so many ways, it would be easier for me to avoid sound doctrine, right? to, to perhaps pull a few cute stories off the internet, to share a thought or two on some small portion of scripture, to put a picture of a cat on the screen and just laugh at the cat every Sunday. Maybe you're not a cat person, I don't know, but they seem cute. To collect a paycheck to leave idolatry unchallenged, to ignore difficult conversations, and to clock out and go home and sleep peacefully. To be completely honest, there are days I wish I could do that. Okay, this is my heart to you right now. I wish 
I could do that at times. I wish I could avoid the conflict and the criticism. I wish I could be loved by everyone. It's a character defect. Okay? But under God, I have been called to shepherd his church. I've been called to feed the sheep. I've been called to labor in the word, in season and out of season. I've been called to provide protection even when nobody else sees the danger. And I seem like a crazy, radical person for pointing it out. I would be felling my God and you if I did anything less. There are days when I wish I could go work at Starbucks, not just because of the coffee, but it seems that being criticized for making a poor latte would be easier to handle than the criticisms that feel so personal and biting that pastors often face. But again, I made a commitment before God to you, signed as a covenant that I've reviewed even this week in prepping for this, and I intend to keep that commitment to the best of my ability. To quote that great theologian Tom Petty, I won't back down. Probably Martin Luther would be better here. Here I stand by the grace of God. Number two, formation is for the good of the church. It's for your good. Okay, and this isn't like I'm going to abuse you and then tell you it's for your good. It really is for your good. Paul continually prays that the church would grow in knowledge and holiness. Just one example should do from Colossians 1, 9 and 10. He says, and so, he's writing to a young church, by the way, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the, get this, the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Hear all this language of cognitive uh, cognitive language of this, this concerns the intellect. It is no less than that. Of course, it's also about communion and intimacy with the triune God. But then his purpose, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we pray for your knowledge to increase so that you would be worthy in your Christian walk and that you would bear fruit. I want you to know that I sincerely pray these very verses over this church routinely. And also some of you know this. I try to pray, though I'm not as good at it as I would like to be, for all of our active membership individually. And occasionally these are the verses I select when I'm praying for those groups. Because this is my desire for you. And it's not because I chose this desire. It's because God has revealed it in Scripture that this is His desire for the church. Paul gives a lengthier explanation in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, he talks about the gifts that Christ has won for the good of the church. That Christ has equipped the church through his death and resurrection. That Christ has done what we could never do so that the church could be strengthened. And then he says this beginning in Ephesians 4 verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds. That's pastors by the way. The pastors and teachers. And here's their purpose. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature personhood or manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see this maturity, this growing. And why is that? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, stagnant, stunted, but growing. 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the idea here is that we would grow into maturity and not be carried away. He goes on, verse 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We distort the teaching of Paul on love all the time, but here love and the growth of the church and all of that is bound together. It is for our good that we would grow together. And for Paul, the pastoral obligation is to equip the saints to build up the body so that the body, that's all of us together, matures and that we're not tossed about by false doctrines, that, that things that come at us can be identified as the dangers they are and we don't just eat them up because everybody else is eating them up. See, formation aims for growth, and growth is for the good of the church. It protects the church and fosters the growth of the church. So for younger saints, it allows them to mature and live this life in maturity as image bearers of Christ. And for older saints, it allows you to prepare for eternity. It allows you to prepare for that moment when you face Christ face to face and you stand before him as someone who has matured into a mature believer. And that's deeply important. So this isn't leaving anybody out here. I recognize our congregation is very diverse at this point. We have people of all ages, even sitting in this room this morning, and we're talking about people at different stages in their Christian life. But the goal was the same, that when you meet Christ, you would be presented to Him as holy and blameless and mature. That is for your good. That's for all of our good. One of the ways this has historically been done, this process of formation and of of strengthening, establishing, is through a strange word, but the word is catechesis. That is using a catechism, okay? Now, some hear this word and they immediately think of some Roman Catholic practice. We'll talk about that this afternoon. But the word catechesis simply comes from a Greek word found in the New Testament several times, and it means instruction or teaching. One example from Luke 1, 4 should do. Luke says, I write so that my readers may have certainty concerning the things they have been taught. And that underlined portion there is your Greek word, catechesis, the things they have been instructed in. Now, a catechism is simply a teaching tool that the church has used it, used in all ages, and it's not exclusive to Roman Catholics. Even in the Reformation period, you had anti-Roman Catholic catechisms being produced. So a catechism is simply a teaching tool, usually in question and answer format, and it is hardly exclusive to any particular denomination. The fact that we as modern Baptists are unaware of this or so unfamiliar with it sadly illustrates our detachment from our historic roots. It sadly illustrates some of the reason we need to reach back into the past. Baptists began writing catechisms from their earliest days. On one website, I counted 18 different published Baptist catechisms starting all the way back in 1652, which is not long after our inception as a group known as Baptist. In the mid-1800s, the American Baptist Publication Society and the Sunday School Board, which we now know as Lifeway, 
commission John Broadus, the second president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, to write a catechism for Southern Baptists to be used in churches. The most famous Baptist of all, Charles Spurgeon, in 1855, wrote a catechism for his congregation, and he said this about it, I am persuaded that the use of a good catechism in all our families will be a great safeguard against the increasing errors of the times. That's Ephesians 4, isn't it? And therefore, I have compiled this little manual from the Westminster Assemblies, that's the, the Presbyterian catechisms, and the Baptist catechisms, referring to those historic ones that preceded him for the use of my own church and congregation. Those who use it in their families or classes must labor to explain the sense, but the words should be carefully learned by heart, for they will understood, be, be understood better as years pass. My family has been trying to catechize our children for years. Let me tell you how that works in practice. So after dinner, several times a week, we pull out our family catechism, that is a historic Baptist catechism, and at the end of the dinner, we go through questions, either presenting new ones and learning them by repetition or reviewing old ones, talking about what they mean, talking about scriptures that are related to them, and explaining things. And of course, as our children have gotten older, it, it becomes more necessary to explain certain aspects of it. Let me tell you about the fruit we've seen. About two weeks ago, I was sitting in my home study, uh, which is just my reading room, and then there's the kitchen and the living room where our main TV is, and Ansley, our middle child, and Leland, our oldest, are sitting in the living room watching an audio book on YouTube or listening to an audio book on YouTube, and Leland loves superheroes, and they're listening to one about Thor, the superhero, and of course, in Thor, coming from Norse mythology, there's this idea of the gods, and in this audio book, I hear something similar about the gods, this pantheon of gods. And all right, right after that, I hear Leland exclaim the answer to the sixth question of our family catechism, no, there is only one true God. Number three, formation is for your joy, really for our joy. Do you know how Jesus defines eternal life? In John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they know you, they have communion with you. It's not just flying off to some heavenly realm forever and ever. It is about communion with the triune God. Knowing is this communion that Jesus talks about here. A few verses later, as Jesus is continuing this conversation and begins praying for his disciples, and Suzanne read this portion for us, he says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. Why do I speak them? So that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy. The words are for our joy. Do you see the connection? Knowing God is eternal life. Knowing God is our joy. Earlier in the Gospel of John, in, in John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that, your, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This communion and knowledge of the triune God is what produces our joy. See, eternal life is not something we experience when we die. It is something that begins the moment we enter into communion with the Trinitarian God. And knowing God intimately, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, is eternal life. That is what formation is for. Eternal life. 
Stagnant Christianity is antithetical to eternal life. J.C. Ryle noted that we must be holy because without holiness on earth, we shall never be prepared to enjoy heaven. That makes absolute sense, doesn't it? Think of life as a training ground for eternity. You're preparing to be with the Lord forever and commune with Him forever. I'm saddened by the amount of Christians who are satisfied with knowing the bare minimum facts they think are required for salvation. If I can be just very serious with you for a second, that is an extremely dangerous situation and an extremely dangerous position to hold. And I can't recommend anyone think like that. Because ongoing growth, according to the New Testament, is the evidence of salvation. It's not baptism, not walking an aisle, not saying a prayer, not shaking a preacher's hand, not joining a church, but ongoing growth. Think of Jesus' parable of the four seeds that fall on the four different soils. Some are snatched up, some are burnt away, and some fall on the rocky ground, or they're burnt away, and then some are, are choked out by the cares of life, the thorns. But it's only those that bear fruit. It's this ongoing growth. These are serious words. And that's why formation and sanctification is necessary. And, and for those of us who know Christ, there is joy in knowing the Lord. And this is eternal life. And this is what we will do for all of eternity. We will know the Lord, peeling back layer after layer, plumbing the infinite depths that we will never reach the bottom of as we come to one degree of glory to the next, beholding the glory of the one true God forever and ever. That's what we'll do. And that leads me to the final point. Formation is for the glory of God. Everything, everything we do as a congregation must be aimed at the glory of God. See, lots of things clamor for our attention. Even good things can become idols. Just think how easy it is for us to replace worship with things we enjoy. How easy it is to say, you know what, this is really tough to, to spend time in prayer and scripture and meditation. Let, let's replace it with something that's more fun. It's easy. I feel the same impulse. My heart is cold when I wake up many a morning and the first thing I want to do is not dive into Scripture and have it warmed by the things of God. The reason is because as Paul says in Romans 7, there is this dead man inside of me that's still there. The, the sin nature is still at play and it must be killed. Right? There's mortification of the flesh is the sort of technical term Christians have used. The killing of the fleshly nature. But again, this is a matter of joy. And true joy only comes from bringing glory to God. Idols will always let us down. They will always let us down because they are not the one true God. This brings us back to the verse we began with in 2 Peter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then this last bit. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Notice how Peter ends, to him be the glory, now and all the way into eternity. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, again, Presbyterian document, captures this so well in its famous first question. What is the chief purpose of man? Man's chief purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Look, we are a church, a congregation of believers. Do you know what is at stake with our existence on this corner of Monument and Libby. It's not our reputation. 
It's not our budget. It's not our facilities. It's not me. It is the glory of God. It is the name of the triune God. It is the name of our Lord Jesus. The name of the living God. The reputation of the living God is what we bear witness to. And that is no light matter. That is what is at stake in everything we do. Whether you're talking about a Sunday morning worship service or a Sunday school class or a class that we offer midweek or an event we put on. What is at stake is the reputation of the living God. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, everything must be aimed at the glory of God. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now look, this formation process is not about individuals. Okay, I, I think some, some, we did a survey, a doctrinal survey, and I think some interpreted that perhaps as, <laughs> uh, as being concurrent with that, but we had wit written the formation process first. I, I need you to know that. And, and you did really well on the doctrinal survey. That was good. Um, it's about cultural trends, okay? It, it's about what we look at and see in the world around us, that there is error abounding and that there are many pitfalls for us out there, that, that to be a distinct community is vital right now. There's a lot of stories I could point you to from Christian history. I love some of these, and I'll be telling them over the months to come, no doubt. But there's one. I don't know if it's apocryphal or actual. I think it probably is apocryphal because I can't find a good source. But when I say it's apocryphal, it still captures the vision of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I don't think it actually happened in the way I'm about to tell it. It's told like this. But, but... But it captures what he was about and what he was after. So the story is told that right before World War II began, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was part of this movement called the Confessing Church, that was seeing the danger of blending the nationalism of the Nazi regime with the church, and it did happen in really intense, severe ways. When he sees the danger of that, he starts an underground seminary to train ministers to be prepared for that culture that is coming around them. And everyone thought he was nuts, of course, and he was doing something incredibly dangerous. In fact, a great majority of those men who went through that training would be executed or would be punished in some way by the Nazi program, including Bonhoeffer himself, who would die just weeks before the concentration camp was liberated at 39 years old. So that's Bonhoeffer. But the story is told that his brother came to him one day and said, Dietrich, what are you doing? You're nuts. And they get in a little boat and they row across this lake and they get to this camp, a hill, and they're overlooking this camp. And there below them are the youth of the Nazi program, the Hitler youth as they were sometimes called, being trained and formed to become Nazis. And Dietrich looks at his brother and says this, is why we're doing what we're doing. Do you see the connection? We're always being formed and shaped by something. And what is of utmost importance for us here at the church is that we are shaped and formed as deeply Christian and distinctively Christian. That the church is known as a Christian group that bears the image of Christ and aims for the glory of God. That is what's at stake. And that's why there's been so much effort put into what we're going to discuss this afternoon. Let me pray for us. I hope I'll see some of you back this afternoon and we'll clarify some things then. 
But let's pray that God would make this so. And two, as we go to prayer, um, I always want to remind you that we are accessible, our staff. So please reach out to us if you want to hear more about what it means to enter into the Christian life because of what Christ has done on the cross and in the empty tomb. We would love to walk you through that. If you're interested in partnership here at the church, you can contact us and talk about what that means and what that process looks like. And then also as we go to prayer, we want to remember especially Pastor Rupert's family, the passing of his mother-in-law, Cheryl's mother. We want to remember um, Chuck Boshan as he's uh, struggling with his own mother right now. And then finally, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, the military personnel who are in harm's way, and all of the people who are in harm's way in that moment. We definitely want to bring these concerns to our Lord this morning. So let me pray for us. Father, we are so needy. As we look at the world, the, the pressure is great. There are challenges that abound, not just doctrinally, but, but culturally. And here in Richmond, we're, we're continuing to see what is a slide into this post-Christian culture. And we pray that you would make us faithful. That you would prepare us to be faithful in the midst of the changing times. We pray for our congregation that you would unify us. Lord, we, we desperately need the unity. There is a tendency with fear and anxiety to stir up division. And this is something Satan uses. And so we pray against his plans. And we ask that you would see us through. That you would give us the strength to stand firm. That you would give us the strength to carry out what you've called us to to be faithful as a congregation. Lord, we do lift up those in our congregation who are hurting, who are suffering, those who are mourning the loss of loved ones, those who are dealing with grief, those who are preparing for that moment of grief and the long journey ahead of them. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution for being faithful. We pray that we would learn from them. We pray that you would give them endurance to be faithful until the end. That you would give them every grace they need. And that you would strengthen them. Of course, Lord, we would pray that you would free them and set them free from harm's way. That you would crush the enemies that would oppose your church. But Lord, we know that's not always how you work in this world. And so we just ask that you would protect them through the gospel and that you would bring them safely into your presence. We pray for all those who are in harm's way, the military personnel from many countries, but particularly our country as we are so concerned with, with those that we know and love and, and with those who represent the place that you have placed us. We pray for those citizens of various countries, but once more, even our own, those who are suffering, those who are in harm's way. We pray that you would protect them, that you would give them wisdom, that you would comfort them and make yourself known to them. Lord, we long for redemption. As we look at the world, we, we pray for the return of Christ. Lord, this world is too much for us. And so we pray as Christians have prayed for so long, come Lord Jesus, and come quickly. And here we close our prayer, Lord, asking that you would help us to be faithful until the day of that return. Amen.